Hello and welcome to this podcast for the Canadian Medical Association Journal. I'm Donald McCauley, Associate Editor for CMAJ, and today we're speaking with Dr. Ian Williamson, who is Associate Professor of Primary Care with the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Southampton in the UK. Hi, Ian. Hi, Donald. Nice to talk to you. You've published a very interesting paper, particularly for our primary care doctors. Otitis media with effusion is a really common condition, and, you know, as a GP, it's a condition we come across all the time. This is a really innovative treatment. Do you want to tell us a little bit about it? Well, basically, the method is using a, a balloon, a nasal balloon, which you get the child to blow up, or it could be an adult, but in this case, the child, through the, through the nostril. So it's a bit like, almost like a party game in a way. And the pressure uh, of blowing up the balloon causes the eustachian tubes to open up and uh, equalize the pressure in the middle ear. So that's the therapeutic mechanism of it. It's quite straightforward and surprisingly children are very good at doing it. So just tell us a little bit about Blue Ear, a little bit about its prevalence and the kind of problems that we come up against in practice. Blue Ear is extremely common. I mean uh, certainly 80% of children at some stage in their lives are going to get it and it's particularly common in the early school years but although they get it a bit younger as well. Most of them get treated with tympanostomy tubes when they're older in the UK. So we focused on slightly older children who get it. It's associated with colds, it's associated with small eustachian tubes, but the problems with it are the fluid that builds up in the middle ear causes damping of the sound getting into the inner ear. So hearing is a big issue, it's, one of, it's probably the main issue, but people perhaps don't realise there's a lot of physical ill health that goes with it, associated infections because the fluid gets infected, there's poor speech, behaviour, it impacts on parent and child quality of life. So it's quite a wide range of impacts, not just on the hearing. We've tried all sorts of treatments for, for blue ear in practice, you know, varying from different antibiotics, nasal steroids and ultimately uh, grommets. How do they compare? What, what are the various treatments? Are they effective? Well, that's a very key question, and that's why we, we've done the research, is because there are, I mean, surgery is effective, we know that, and it's good, but it's only in a carefully selected minority of children. So for the vast majority of children that we see, we don't have a non-surgical, or i.e. a medical option to give. If you look at the evidence for um, antibiotics, certainly nasal steroids, oral steroids as well, there, there's no positive evidence that they are of benefit to decongestants as well. So uh, surprisingly, some people may be surprised to hear that, but if you look at the trials that have been done and the evidence reviews, as I've done, there, there is no persuasive evidence for any of these interventions. So tell us a little bit about how you identified the patients, how you selected them. So there were 43 practices spread throughout the UK, um, well, England mostly. Family physicians recruited children from their list. They looked uh, if a child had been in with an ear problem in the previous year or if they were at high risk of getting glue ear. Uh, it's the younger children in the winter months. Uh, we wrote to parents in some cases and if the parents were concerned, and they had relevant symptoms, they could come for a screen, and then if the screen was positive, uh, that's using tympanometry, they could be entered into the study. Uh, some were entered opportunistically, just coming in 
to the surgery to see the doctor, but that was only about just over 10% of our uh, sample. Where the parents were concerned that their child had had classic, shall we say classic, symptoms of glue ear, which uh, mishearing what's said, uh, prolonged colds, uh, uh, speech behind other children, those sorts of general concerns which fit with glue ear, they could come in and about over a thousand children came in to see the, the doctor, well the research nurse in fact in the practice and then they would be screened with tympanometry and if this more precise measurement of whether there is fluid behind the ear actually at the time, because that's a big issue with glue ear, is it actually there at the moment, even if they've got symptoms, we did this uh, test, which is more specific and more sensitive than the clinical history, tympanometry. And so if the child had what's called a B tympanogram, then that's really quite highly predictive of fluid behind the ear. So it just gave that extra bit of rigour to the study to have that test done. And also it meant we could blind the outcome uh, that we were assessing because you can't blind um, the actual intervention itself. People know they're blowing a balloon up through their nose. So it was important to have an outcome that we could blind. So tympanometry tracers, could be, we could do that with that method. So the tympanometry trace, was that, that was the, the primary outcome, was it? Was that the... It was, yes. We used biological outcomes, but we looked at symptom and patient-reported outcome measure outcomes as well. So it was the primary outcome because we just wanted... Firstly, to demonstrate, does the balloon work? Does it, does it actually clear the effusions? So we looked at clearance of effusions from baseline to one month, uh, baseline to three months, with the child as the unit of analysis. And also we looked, because there's more ears than children, we also looked at the what we call the by-ear analysis, which gives more ears to analyse. And uh, So that's four measures, at one month and three months, child and ear, and there were 320 children uh, randomised into the, into the trial. So that's quite large for a primary care study. And did they all complete the study? Actually, we had very good retention in the study. The children were enthusiastic and the families, I'm, I'm pleased to say. We had only 8%, I think, a loss to follow up at one month and 12% at three months. That's good retention rates. But the, with the tympanometry, there were sometimes problems uh, interpreting it. There may have been wax or the child wouldn't do it on a certain occasion. So there were a few percentage more cases where we couldn't actually get the technical data. But we had uh, results on uh, certainly on over 80% of children. In an intervention like this, randomised controlled trial, randomisation and blinding is pretty impossible. I mean, how did you get over that? Well, that's the major weakness of the study is you couldn't. I mean, there's no way we could think of a way of blinding that. So what we did, first of all, was use web-based randomisation in the practice. So with minimisation, so basically... The nurse couldn't say, oh, we do, you want that uh, or you don't, you know, we, we knew which one they were getting. The other was we obviously used our primary outcomes, were fully blinded uh, because all the printouts from the tympanometry were uh, sent to us by an independent trial unit. So we hadn't got a clue which child was which uh, tympanogram. So 
we are confident, very confident that we've, you know, we've done our best with evaluating the tympanograms. And, and then just one final point is that, of course, although blinding is a great thing, if you're looking for natural effects, I mean, um, you know, how is an intervention likely to work in the real world, then actually for a pragmatic trial, a bit of performance bias is acceptable because it tells you how the intervention is likely to be were you to apply it in the real world rather than in a randomised trial. Now, the real core question, what, what did you find? Right, it works, in, you know, a simple statement. It, it does work. The effect is modest. It's about a 12% difference in clearance of effusions. So that gives a number needed to treat of about, uh, if you round it up to nine, at both one and three months, which... It's a modest, but it's a worthwhile clinical effect. It does clear effusions. And also on our symptom diaries, there was improvement in symptoms. We used a total score, so we weren't data dredging. So that was effective at also at three months, not at one. Just missed it. But then the hearing-related quality of life measure, which has been developed by the Medical Research Council over here, that was a big surprise to us because what we found was about half a standard deviation improvement in the score and we'd only calculated for 0.3 as being significant so that was quite a, a moderate sized effect on the hearing related quality of life as well that was an unexpected finding it's not been I don't think it's been shown before in any studies that uh, intervention has affected quality of life so our findings were significant uh, across a range of outcomes so giving internal consistency that we have a real effect from uh, using this intervention that's worthwhile. And externally, if you put it into a meta-analysis with other small studies from hospital, the, all the trend is in the same direction. This device actually does work and is well worth considering uh, and thinking about. So bringing this into practice, would you anticipate, are there, are there any problems or drawbacks to this intervention? I mean, one of the things you might wonder or listeners might wonder about, is there a possibility that this auto-inflation could introduce infection? There is a very small possibility to that effect. There's no actual statistical evidence that that's the case. I mean, we didn't find any statistically significant difference in infection rates. And previous, there were two small previous studies done in hospital where the infection rate was actually lower in the treated group. And that makes sense in, if they cleared the fluid from the ear, then there'll be less risk of infection of the fluid. I think it's an unknown, to be honest, uh, Donald, but uh, I think the risks must be quite tiny if they are there. We've been speaking with Dr Ian Williamson, Associate Professor of Primary Care with the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Southampton in the UK. He's the first author in this paper, which has come from a very big research group, including the folk in Southampton and in Oxford. To read the research article he co-authored, visit cmaj.ca.